0: You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit AscendKC.org. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. And as you're turning there, I just want to cover a couple things. Number one, there's an elephant in this room, and it doesn't affect really any of you most likely. It affects those who have turned around and left and not come into worship But we have a parking lot problem. And so you all have experienced that in some measure. And we know that. We are aware of that. We are working on getting drawings. We're working with engineers. We're working on making sure that our budget is all set so that we can add to the parking space here at our facility. There's weather. There's all of those details that go into it. But we just wanted to let you know, as well as anybody who's watching online, that we know We have a parking problem. We are working on that. And so by God's grace, that is a good problem to have. Amen. And then also, I want to just remind you that if you were not here last Sunday, what an opportunity to be challenged, encouraged, and comforted all in the same sermon by Dave Harvey. The ripple effect in my own life continues even this morning to be reminded of where contentment can be found, and that is in our identity in Christ. I love the phrase that he used over and over again. When we do not have what we desire, we have more than what we deserve. What an amazing truth. What an amazing gospel. And I pray that if you haven't had an opportunity to listen to that, that you will do so and that it will bear fruit in your life. Mark chapter 12, we continue our study of the gospel of Mark. I'll begin reading in verse 18. And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, "'Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother.' There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he had died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring.' Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses and the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. One set of grandparents I had lived in Los Angeles, and we loved visiting our grandparents. Primarily, we loved visiting our grandparents because we loved these grandparents, but secondarily, we loved it because they lived in Los Angeles. And so every time we would visit them, there would always be these adventures, and I love the adventures to the beach or to the mountains because we don't have a whole lot of that back here in Kansas City. But one adventure in particular was not really exciting to me when they told us about it, but I grew in my excitement as I experienced it. My grandpa told me that we would take a tour of the backlots at Universal City Studios. I remember going on that tour, and there was one stop that really stood out to me. Of course, there was the stop of the giant shark head that came out of the water, and there was the, the, the stop where it seemed like we were experiencing an earthquake, but, but the one stop that stood out to me was when we turned and we stopped, and there before me, in Los Angeles, was New York City, circa 1920. It was amazing to me. I could see it with my eyes. I could see the architecture. I could see the, the windows. I could see the doors. And, and I wanted to jump out and to be able to experience New York City because it was there and it was so real. But our tour guide said something that my eyes could not believe. She said it was all a facade. She said, in fact, it was all primarily plywood. Plywood. What appeared to be stone, what appeared to be amazing architecture, was just some amazing paint, some amazing artistry. What looked so real after we sat there for some time, we realized was actually fake. We realized it was actually a facade. Friends, this passage is an attempt for religious experts to expose Jesus and the gospel as being fake, as being revealed to be something that Jesus said that it was not. The religious leaders attempted with great artistry to be able to present Jesus as fake, and yet, this is a spoiler alert, Jesus turned the tables on them to reveal that their religion was actually what was fake, Beloved, as human beings, we are great artists, aren't we? And we ourselves can fool the backlot tour of a Sunday morning service, can't we? We can actually go so far as to fool small group relationships, to present ourselves as one thing, but in reality, actually be a gospel facade. And so, our passage before us gives us an opportunity. You can see the big idea in your notes to realize that when it comes to the truth of the gospel, time and truth go hand in hand. Given enough time, sitting in the tram, viewing one another in our back lot tour, looking to see who we really are, will expose whether or not it is the gospel that has transformed us or whether or not it is a religious facade. So I want us to see four facades that this passage reveals to give you and to give me an opportunity to see, is our faith real? Number one, the facade of pragmatic religion. The facade of pragmatic religion. Look at what it says in verse 18. It says, the Sadducees came to him who said, there is no resurrection. Resurrection. If you've studied the Gospels at any length, you are probably familiar with this group to whom Mark introduces to us for the very first time. Up to this point, we've seen religious leaders described as Pharisees, we've seen religious leaders described as scribes, we've seen even religious leaders described as the Sanhedrin. But this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that we are introduced to the Sadducees. Mark adds in verse 18 that these people were known by their refusal to believe in the resurrection. In fact, that's often why people say they were sad, you see. I didn't make that up. Why does Mark introduce them here? What is it that he wants the readers to understand when he presents the Sadducees for the very first time? Well, for us to be able to answer that question, we've got to get into our our little time machine to to go from the 21st century back to the 1st century. And as we arrive at the 1st century, we are introduced to a culture who is very familiar with the Sadducees. In fact, by Jesus' day, the Sadducees had been around for about 200 years, there was a time where a family in Israel known as the Maccabees were going against and they actually created war against the Greeks who were coming into Israel and trying to take over Israel and trying to be able to overturn the the years and the generations of following after the God of Israel and the Maccabees would not stand for it. And so they revolted against Greece and they actually succeeded and they set up what was known as the Hasmonean dynasty. The Hasmoneans were going to be the precursors to the Sadducees. And the Sadducees began to assemble a system of beliefs that included the refusal to believe in the resurrection, but the reason for that was because they only recognized the first five books of the Bible in the Old Testament as authoritative. So that would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the elephant graveyard of Bible reading plans. But if the Sadducees did not find a topic or or a doctrine of theology in those five books, then they refused to believe in it. As they developed their system of belief, they became rivals of the group known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees embraced all of the Old Testament as well as the traditions of the elders, There was conflict between the two, and what you see as you study Israel's history is that political leaders would kind of go back and forth between these political parties, kind of like what we see today with people in our society. Some would go over to the Pharisees, and then the Pharisees would get great authority and then some would go over to the Sadducees and then the Sadducees would get great authority but by the time you get to Jesus day the Sadducees had great authority and they had established themselves as the spiritual and religious elite by family kind of like the royalty in England the Sadducees received their power from being in the upper class and having the ability to appease and cooperate with Rome The Sadducees were very focused on keeping status quo. Because if the status remained quo, then they would remain in power. And so when you have this rabbi come on the scene who is teaching things that they don't agree with, when he's stirring up potential strife with Rome, the status quo is threatened. And so the Sadducees were constantly aware of and against Jesus. And so the Sadducees come up to Jesus And Mark wants us to know that they do not believe in the resurrection. It's interesting, isn't it, to hear that a famous athlete or a famous entertainer claims to be a Christian? When I was growing up with my dad playing for the Royals, I remember friends at school would say, man, if your dad could just lead George Brett to salvation. Can you imagine the revival that would take place around the globe if number five became a Christian? We often hear about somebody after a Super Bowl win that says, I give glory to God. And immediately we're like, ah, Christians. But then we hear many times these entertainers or these athletes. We hear their language or we see their decisions that they make with relationships. And we start to wonder, are they really saved. And the question must be asked, how do we know whether somebody is truly a Christian? Is it because they are religious? Is it because they attend church? Is it because they say when they are interviewed, I give glory to God? Is it because they attend small group? Is it because they give money in the offering? used to say offering plate, but we don't do that anymore because of COVID. What is it that actually demonstrates whether or not somebody is truly saved? Here's a quote I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. The Pharisees demonstrated concern for ceremonial law. That was in the Mosaic Covenant for ritual purity, but also the preservation of their status, keeping the peace. And complying with Roman overlords. Listen to how they handled the last weeks of Jesus' life. They paid blood money in Matthew 27, verse 6, to Judas to betray Jesus. And yet they would not defile themselves religiously by entering the praetorium. John 18, verse 28 But they also handed over a fellow Jew to be tried by Gentiles. Beloved, listen, their approach to religion was pragmatic. Pragmatism is when the end or the outcome justifies the means. When we are so focused on the outcome and care less about the process of getting that outcome, that is pragmatism. Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ cares very deeply for the outcome of the gospel, but it also cares very deeply for the process. And there's been plenty of professing Christians throughout world history who, in their quest for outcomes, have actually defamed the name of Christ in the process. Here's a quote. Pragmatic religion uses religion for one's personal benefit why are you here this morning is there a hope that you had as you prepared to come to this building that somehow god would shine his favor upon you because of an act that you did apparently for him why do you give of your tithes and offerings why do you worship one work one Why do you become a member of a church? Why do you get baptized? Why do you do or perform any religious activity? If it is for your own personal benefit, then that is pragmatic religion. Gospel religion is the expression of a relationship with God rooted in worship, in spirit, and in truth. Gospel religion is the expression of a relationship with God rooted in worship, in spirit, and in truth. I haven't known or applied this for a lot of my life. I grew up in an environment where it was a Christian school and a Christian church where you were expected to be at the church anytime the doors were open. You were expected to almost wear a uniform on Sunday morning of a coat and a tie you were expected to use one and only one version of the bible and before you know it the perception that i had was that religion would guarantee god's favor that these activities were required for god to be appeased But the fact of the matter is, when you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it presents God in such glory and such splendor that it should well up within us, a value that we place on him, where these activities are the overflow of that value, not the expression of a duty. And the Sadducees, over 200 years, had gotten to a place where they were using religion for their own benefit. And we'll see that when we see how they use the very topic that they don't believe in, resurrection. There is a facade of pragmatic religion, but then number two, the facade is also of pre-crafted scenarios. The facade of pre-crafted scenarios. Mark has already given the reader the understanding that they do not believe in the resurrection. And and what they love to do is they love to debate in public this topic of the resurrection. And their goal was in their debate to be able to present and reveal the resurrection as absurd. We often do that in our debates, don't we? We craft our arguments in such a way where the person who is in opposition to us will be exposed as being absurd for holding that position. Pharisees and the majority of the Jews believed in the resurrection they believed that there was a life after death that the body of us as human beings would be physically resurrected in the end times to be in the presence of God and you can almost see their strut as they walked in to the temple area to debate Jesus Because back in chapter 11, the the religious leaders had come to Jesus and presented a question to expose him as fake. And Jesus, boom, dropped the mic. And then, remember, they sent the Pharisees and the Herodians. Okay, those religious leaders didn't, didn't work. So we'll send the Pharisees and the Herodians. And remember, they came and they asked a question about taxes that they thought would be a yes or no. And, and how did Jesus respond? Not with a yes or no, but with theology. Boom, dropped the mic. They walked away in shame. And so you can almost imagine like the football linemen walking into the room because here come the big boys, the Sadducees. Y'all are JV, y'all failed, here come the big boys. And so they asked him a question in verse 19. They say, teacher, Moses wrote for us. See what they're doing is they're going back to the first five books of the Bible, Remember, those are the books that they recognize as authoritative. And so they're going back to Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. This is a passage that if you look at your English translation, it will probably have a header of that paragraph that says, Leveret marriage, L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E. And I have to tell you, I, I usually thought that this had something to do with the tribe of Levi, but it doesn't. It's actually Latin for Levir, which means brother-in-law. And this was the law that God gave to Israel because tribal inheritance was extremely important to the Jews. Your tribal inheritance would tell you what land you could actually live in. It would allow you to be able to give evidence that you were part of the family of God, of the family of Israel. Israel. And so God gave instruction that if a husband and wife were married and there were no children and the husband died, that there could be a way where a child could be raised up so that the legacy of family and tribal inheritance could continue. And so the Sadducees go back to the section of scripture they recognize as authority and you see the repetition in the text. There was a husband and a wife, the husband died, the second brother was on the scene. He died. The third brother was on the scene. He died. No children, no children, no children. And then they say the seventh died as well. Finally, the original wife died. We often make our arguments with scenarios, don't we? One of my favorite topics of scripture is the sovereignty of God. That God doesn't just know what events will take place, but he actually ordains them. Every detail of our life, everyone who will be saved, God ordains them. And I haven't always loved that doctrine. I remember when people would begin to teach it to me, I started coming up with scenarios. But if this is true, then what about this? If God ordains those who will be saved, and he does so before the foundation of the world, and you can look at Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 to see where the Bible says that, then how do I even need to evangelize would be a scenario I would come up with. Then why do I even share with my kids about the gospel? Because if they're ordained and predestined, then they'll be saved, so what does it matter? And I'd come up with these preconceived scenarios to prove my point. But the key to preconceived scenarios is actually the title that these Sadducees give to Jesus. Look at verse 19. What do they call him? Teacher. Beloved, this is the key to this section. Because it is implied that if you're referring to somebody as teacher, then you are what? The student. And students learn. From teachers. Here's a quote that I would encourage you to engage with. When we bring pre-crafted scenarios to be proven right, we are not seeking to learn. When we bring pre-crafted scenarios only to prove that we are right, then we are not coming to learn. The process of debate might reveal that we are right. It might reveal that our presuppositions that we came to the debate with will prove that we are right. But, beloved, we should always come to a debate with some measure of being a learner. It's not always wrong to come to debates with presuppositions or pre scenarios. But the key, beloved, and I would encourage you to write this down, is what is the standard of right and wrong? Is the standard of right that we believe it? Is the standard of right that we can comprehend it? Is the standard of right our convictions and our conclusions? See, the Sadducees came to the debate with Jesus with the pre-crafted scenario that they were the authority on right and wrong. But beloved, when it comes to the gospel, we must submit ourselves to the fact that the standard of right and wrong is God's word. And friend, that's a a multi-layered statement that I just made. And just because we can give a verse to defend our position does not guarantee that our position is right. Here's a phrase I would encourage you to write down. It's one that the Reformers constantly stated. Scripture must interpret Scripture. Scripture must interpret Scripture. That's why biblical theology is so important. Biblical theology, the reminder that the Bible is an entire story, and the scene of a story cannot be interpreted in a way that the entire story is contradicted. So when we think we understand a verse or a passage, let's look at the rest of the scripture to see, does scripture agree with our conclusions? Because, beloved, at the end of the day, when it comes to the gospel, the authority of right and wrong is scripture and the gospel itself. The Sadducees, however, were convinced that they themselves were the authority. And time and truth went hand in hand to expose their authority was a facade. Number three, the facade of pseudo-theology. Pseudo, P-S-E-U-D-O, starts with a P. Pseudo means false or not genuine. And what they do is they take their real life scenario, their their real life scenario of a husband and wife, and then the husband dies, and that whole Leverett scenario, And and they take that scenario, and just like Jesus did with his stories, they draw a theological question. That's what they're doing here, is they're taking a real life situation to somehow present a theological truth. So it begs the question, what is theology? Well, at a basic level, theology is the study of God. But I want to present to you another definition. Theology is the study of God's character revealed in the unfolding of redemptive history centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Theology is the study of God's character revealed in the unfolding of redemptive history centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, this moves us beyond seminaries. It moves us beyond a a class in our society that has studied the academics of God to see that theology is the gospel and the gospel is theology. And this is where the Sadducees missed it. In their mind, theology was simply the study of God, a God of their own construction, a God who would advance their own agenda, a God who would protect their own self-preservation. They could not see that at the center of theology is Jesus Christ, the man that they were asking the question. Beloved, everyone is a theologian. By the simple definition. Everyone has an opinion of God. Even atheists have an opinion of God. Everyone is a theologian. But most draw their conclusions about the existence of God and what that means for them based on their own authority. Isn't it interesting, the questions, the question that the Sadducees state in verse 23, look at what it says, in the resurrection, when these individuals rise again, and yet, what did Mark say they did not believe in? The resurrection. So why in verse 23 are they using a theology topic that they don't even believe in? Because what they're attempting to do is expose the fact that the resurrection is absurd. I mean, you can imagine, the people who are listening to this question, listening to the Sadducees unpack, seven brothers, one wife, Seven brothers, one wife, no children. The people, by the time they got to the seventh, are saying, your story is absurd. And what the Sadducees were hoping is that people would realize, as absurd as our story is, so is the belief in the resurrection. Maybe you've experienced this. If you've attended a secular university, you might have experienced this with professors. Where professor talks about biblical Christianity and makes some statement to be able to attempt to expose how absurd the gospel is, how absurd biblical Christianity is. You believe? You believe in a man who died on the cross to forgive sins and then rose again? In fact, it's interesting. There's archaeology discoveries of a, a drawing from the first century from a Roman soldier. And the drawing is of a donkey head and a human body on a cross with a man worshiping that donkey head. And the caption says that the person worshiping is worshiping his Savior. The world thinks that the gospel is absurd. Maybe you've experienced this with Coworkers, or classmates, or friends, or family members, and you dread the Thanksgiving meals or the Christmas meals because you know that if you go down this road, it's just going to get it's going to get ugly. Because to the world, the theology of the gospel is absurd. And so, how does Jesus respond to this? He responds to this by saying. But there is a reason that they are wrong. There's a reason why their pre crafted scenario, why their pseudo theology, why their pragmatic religion is wrong. And the reason for that is twofold. Look at what it says You do not know the scriptures, nor do you know the power of God. Beloved, at the epicenter of true biblical theology are both of those topics, the scriptures and the power of God. Here's a quote. Theology that is not accountable to scripture and the power of God, no matter how eloquent, popular, or humanly logical is a pseudo-theology. Beloved, it does not matter how many letters are after a person's name. It does not matter how long they have been in a profession associated with Christianity. It does not matter how many books they have written. It does not matter how big their congregation or following is. It does not matter if they have a TV ministry or a radio ministry. A theology that is not accountable to the word of God and the power of God is a pseudo-theology. And friends, given enough time, The truth of your understanding of Scripture and the power of God will be exposed. Will it be real or will it be a facade? Number four, the facade of personal authority. The facade of personal authority, and these all overlap to some degree. But look at how Jesus brackets his response. Verse 24 and verse 27. Jesus says to them, you are wrong, verse 24, verse 27. He says, you are quite wrong. I love the, well, I don't love. I think it's interesting the Jesus that we like to present. The Jesus who is all fuzzy-feely. The Jesus who is all compassion, all mercy. The Jesus who agrees to disagree. Who loves everyone's opinion who meets us where we are. And see, every one of those statements that I gave is a true reality that is presented in the Jesus of Scripture, but there's another side. There's another side that includes his wrath, that includes his justice, that includes his truth. A love Dave shared with me this last week And maybe he also said it in the marriage conference. But he said that it is at the cross where every attribute of God's character is most vividly on display. His wrath against sin is presented in the brutality of the death of Jesus. His wrath against sin is presented on the darkness that represented the father turning his back on his son His mercy and his grace and his forgiveness and his compassion are vividly on display in the cross. You want to see the epicenter of God's character? Then look to the cross. Jesus says that you are wrong and you are quite wrong. Why? Because there is a right and a wrong. And he has just said that the Sadducees do not understand the scriptures or the power of God, and then he will explain how that is evident. It's because they are drawing conclusions based on their own personal authority. Here's a quote. Jesus recognizes that there is a right and a wrong, and his expectations are that we get it right. Right? He cares very deeply. Beloved, this is why theology is important. And I get there are some deep ends of the theological pool. But he does not want us, if we are truly a follower of Jesus Christ, to just simply make statements of, well, I just love Jesus. I'll let all the deep things be handled by pastors and elders. That is not the expectation that Jesus has for his disciples. That is why to his disciples he constantly was asking, do you understand? That is why he says to Nicodemus, do you understand? That is why the epistles are written, so that we will understand. Lay people, professional ministers, and everybody in between. God wants us as disciples to be theologians. And so, beloved, study the scripture. Be a theologian. Come to a point where you land on all of these topics. That's the beauty of the local church. We do have brothers and sisters in Christ who can help, who can assist, who can equip you to do the study, to get it right. I remember learning something in seminary, and it was a rare opportunity for me to have a great conversation with my mom's brother, my uncle. Just through the years, we've lived in different areas, and the kids, our cousins are different ages, and so we didn't have a built-in opportunity to develop relationships with them. But he came out, and he and I had a long conversation about theology. And we were talking back and forth about what his church believed and what we believed, and I hope that I handled it well, although, man, I look back to some of the conversations that I had when I was young, and I'm so ashamed. But, but, but my desire in that conversation was to be able to move my uncle and me toward this reality, and that is, there is a right and wrong. But what my uncle said at the end of our conversation is, how do we know who is right? You see, throughout history, that often is answered by some authority in a religious professional setting. Whether it be a pope, whether it be a pastor, whether it be somebody who has credentials from an academic institution, But, beloved, the the authority that lets us know whether or not something is right is, again, Scripture itself and Scripture interpreting Scripture. And listen, you and I can do that. We are expected to do that. And we are grace gifted with tools to help us accomplish that. One of them is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our teacher, and when we give our lives to Christ, God's Spirit dwells in us and He moves us toward the truth. But, but another grace gift is the local church. Ephesians 4:11, God grace gifted the local church with pastor teachers, with elders to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Listen, the church is not designed for you to come and listen to the one expert proclaim the truth of the word of God. All you're doing is coming to get equipped to study it and determine the truth. yourselves. Isn't that awesome? What a gift. But then another gift is that we have the completed word of God. We don't have 39 books like the Jews of Jesus' day. We've got all 66. The completed revelation of God. What God wants us to know is contained in this book. That's awesome. So we should study it. And then he gives us discipleship relationships in the local church. Small group. Serving in kids' ministry. Developing relationships at Spring Festival. You knew I'd get back that that back in there. And so what does Jesus say? How how do we understand what is right and what is wrong? Well, he says the power of God. And so what does he reveal as evidence of the power of God? This is a very misunderstood passage. I've read commentaries, and they have exposed what I thought growing up, and that is that when we get to heaven, there will be no more marriage. There will be no more physical intimacy. Because it says here that the... They, they, in heaven, they do not, angels do not marry nor are given in marriage. And so when believers get to heaven, there will be no more marriage. There will be uh, no more giving in marriage. But that isn't specifically what Jesus is teaching here. What he's teaching about is the power of God. Look at what he says. He says, For when they rise from the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. That's the key phrase. And what he's doing is he's revealing that we as human beings, in all of our limitations, in all of our frailty, in all of our need to be able to procreate, in all of our need for there to be protection and provision and help, all of those needs that are present in our humanity will not be present in heaven. Why? Because we will be transformed. And all of those fleshly and human needs will no longer be present. But the fact of the matter is, and I think it was Jonathan Edwards that says this, our ability to love in heaven will be unbounded. And I got to tell you this, I plan on chasing my wife for eternity. The point that Jesus was making here is that God's power is unparalleled. How can God take our reality that we have right now and completely make all of the needs that we have irrelevant? That's power. But then it's not just the power of God. He also goes to the scriptures. Look at the verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? I I love this because grammar is important, beloved. Don't just let grammar be important to scholars and pastors. Grammar is extremely important. And so remember, the Sadducees did not believe in any of the books outside of the first five. So if the term resurrection is not found in those books, then they don't believe in it. How many times have we done that with concepts like the Trinity? The word's not there. But what Jesus does here is in one term and in a second concept expose that the resurrection is in the first five books look at what he says have you not read in the book of Moses he's referring to Exodus 3 verse 6 in the passage about the bush that's the burning bush just a reminder the original text did not have chapters and verses How God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Look at verse 27. He is. It's a present tense verb. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob alive physically on this earth during Jesus' day? The answer is no. But what Jesus is doing is saying he is, present tense, the God of these men who have long since left this earth. They are still alive. He still is their God, exposing that there is life after death. But then he also reveals the covenant love of God for these men. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What a reminder that is to us of God's covenant faithfulness. When God makes a promise against all odds, he fulfills it. That's what Matthew 1 in the genealogy is all about. Study the genealogy. I know genealogy is another elephant graveyard. Genealogy in Matthew 1 reminds us through all of those stories, through all of those unexpected twists and turns, that when God promises something, he will deliver. He is faithful, and Scripture reveals that. The account in Matthew 22, verse 33, says that when the crowd reflected on this answer, they were astonished. Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, says they were astonished because the authority with which he spoke. Beloved, as you bow your heads and close your eyes, I want to leave you with that statement ringing in your ears and ask the question what authority do you submit to? Every one of us have an authority in our lives. As Americans, we struggle with authority. We like to vote out authority. We like to complain about authority on social media. And yes, we can debate about the righteousness and unrighteousness of our present authority. But the ultimate authority for every human being is God himself. The ultimate authority for every human being is his word, his design, and his standards. Some of us will submit to that authority. Some of us will not. And that response will reveal where we will spend eternity. So, beloved, I want to ask you this. Have you surrendered to the authority of God? I love what Jesus said. His authority is not burdensome. His authority is actually freedom. No longer are you in slavery to yourselves and your sin. You are now enslaved to the God of the universe, and he is all of those attributes that we've been talking about, gracious, merciful, compassionate, but he's also just. He also defines and expects us to submit to absolute truth. So, friend, will you submit to him today by acknowledging that he is holy? Holy that you are a sinner, that the only way to reconcile that gap is the completed work of Jesus Christ. Will you surrender to that as was expressed in the baptisms today and ask him to forgive your sins, surrendering to Jesus Christ as your Lord? Friend, if you have, would you evaluate your own religion, your own living out the gospel, is there anything that you're presenting that is not authentic? Is there anything that would appear on the outside to be one thing, but on the inside reveals it was just a facade? Take this opportunity as we continue to reflect and respond, to invite the Holy Spirit to assist you in transferring the learning into living.